Happy Hanukkah. Well, almost, right? We're in the season, though. It's fast approaching. It'll be here before we know it. So I'm going to start with a series in December right now on Hanukkah. And of course, there's more here than I can do in this short period of time. And so if you want a fuller treatment of Hanukkah, we have lots of that on our website, on our YouTube station. You can just kind of go down and sort through that and find previous series that we've already done on this uh, celebration of Hanukkah. Today, I want to talk about the power of truth, because Hanukkah is all about truth. Hanukkah is all about the revelation of truth. The scriptures reveal that the last days will be characterized by an assault on the truth. The scriptures tell us that reality is going to be turned upside down and replaced with confusion and chaos. That in the last days, people will call the good evil and the evil good. Everything gets turned upside down. And this confusion will lead, of course, to tyranny, which leads to misery and ultimately widespread death. Surprisingly, the answer to all of this is found in the celebration of this festival called Hanukkah. It is the story of loyalty, faithfulness, and courage in the face of overwhelming odds. In this series, we'll discover an ancient truth of how the few can overthrow the many. This truth is the very hope and inspiration and motivation that we all need to stand against the lawlessness all around us, engulfing our world today, assaulting us and our families and our churches. So let's rise up. Let's expose the lies and speak the truth and overthrow this lawlessness that has attacked us and seeks to enslave us. Now, many Christians are shocked to discover that Jesus was not only in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, but that he also fulfilled its meaning by revealing who he was during that celebration. Jesus took time out to travel to Jerusalem to be there for Hanukkah. He had a purpose in that celebration, which will become evident as we get down into this series. But suffice it to say, most Christians aren't even aware that Hanukkah is referenced in the New Testament. It's like, where's Hanukkah? I've never read anything about Hanukkah. And that's largely due to the fact that we translate the Hebrew word into the meaning in English. It's called the Feast of Dedication. It's found in John chapter 10. But actually, the word in the Hebrew is Hanukkah. It goes through the Greek and then the Latin into the English and becomes the festival of dedication. So in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, it states, Now Hanukkah was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the porch of Solomon. Lots of questions now, right? What is Jesus doing attending the celebration of Hanukkah? 
Hanukkah is not one of the mosaic celebrations. Hanukkah is not one of the commanded festivals. So why is he taking time out? Why is he down there in this celebration of Hanukkah, especially during winter, right? I mean, his pilgrimage from the upper Galilee where his ministry was centered would have took several days in good weather to get down there to Jerusalem. But it's winter. So you're going to basically double that journey, the time of that journey, if you're coming down through the winter, winter time, the winter season. So it was a great effort and great sacrifice on his part to be there for this celebration. But why? What is the purpose? Now, the context is everything. Once we understand what Hanukkah is about, it makes perfect sense why he would be interested, why he would attend why he would use that as a, as a platform to reveal who he was. So let's jump back a little bit and develop the background to this Hebrew word Hanukkah, this celebration of dedication. The Hebrew word is Hanukkah, literally translated dedication. It references the rededication of the temple of God after he had delivered Israel from those that hated God, from lawless tyrants who had all but destroyed the Torah as a revelation of truth and the way of life for all who believed in God. This took place before the coming, first coming of Jesus. This is all the way back in the era of the Maccabees, uh, 100-plus years before uh, Jesus arrives on the scene. This drama, and out of this drama, this celebration of Hanukkah is also referenced in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the coming of the abomination of desolation. He takes that phrase right out of Daniel. That phrase that actually is rooted in the very foundations of this celebration is what he uses in describing what was coming to Israel in 70 AD. He talks about a time in which this already transpired and then says it's coming again. Learn about this abomination of desolation event because it's going to replay itself again in his generation. In order to understand Jesus' references to Hanukkah, we have to go back to the story and reread it, taking away from it the principles that are embedded in it, and then looking for application in our lives, in our generation. In order to understand Hanukkah, we have to go back to Daniel. That's where it all begins. Are we ready to take the journey back? To the time of Hanukkah? Yeah, it's a great journey. So stay in your seats. Keep your seat belts on until the ride comes to a complete stop, right? There's going to be many twists and turns. And as a result, you will never be the same. Daniel 8. This is the theological context of Hanukkah. I'm going to jump into uh, the text I don't have time to develop 
the context of Daniel's visions, but we're going to jump into it. You can go back and read them, study them. But God has given Daniel a revelation of four consecutive world empires and how they will interact with his people, Israel. We're going to jump into the vision where the third empire is prophesied to rise and take its place. Daniel's currently serving in the Medo-Persia Empire, which has already overthrown Babylon. So he's in the second empire. He's had a vision that he gave the king of Babylon, and this vision's playing its way out, and it's going to move from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek Empire, and then finally to the Roman Empire. So we're going to pick up the reading in chapter 8 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ule Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in the front of the canal. Now this is a vision, so what you find in a vision is a lot of symbols and figures of speech. It's the language of of, of vision. So he sees a ram which had two horns standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So these animals within Daniel's vision correspond to great leaders and nations, kingdoms, if you will, that are clashing and fighting at war, jostling to become that superpower of that particular era. Verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which he had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. He struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Now, now Daniel's going to reveal who this is. And then later in the book of Maccabees, that's going to become even clearer. But as we read that, we discover this is a reference to a very young world leader who was basically unstoppable. He was like the greatest leader in the world, probably in world history, if you were to bring into account his age. He was very young in terms of of being a world leader. This is none other than Alexander the Great. And he basically leveled nations in his path and rise to supremacy. He He was just stunning in every way says, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And we know that in the rise of of this great leader, Alexander, that he conquered more than anyone had ever conquered before at his age, and then perishes, 
dies at a very early age. But out of him, him the empire is, is divided, and then it goes on. Out of one of these divisions came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. That's a reference to Israel, the beautiful land. So this little horn coming out, out of one of these divisions is going to come against Israel. It grew up to the host of heaven, caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. In this prophecy, this little horn will come against Israel and then magnify itself and, and clamor to be a Messiah. Clamor to be, if you will, God on earth. In fact, the name of this little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. He believed he was God manifest on earth. And what does he do? He attacks Israel, comes against their religious belief and observances. He's going to destroy or stop, I should say, he's going to stop the regular sacrifice. Those are the sacrifices that happen every day in the temple is the very picture of atonement by substitution. The morning lamb and the afternoon lamb. They're the very depictions and symbols of the Messiah himself. And he's going to come and stop it because he's going to take its place, proclaim himself as the Messiah, the savior of the people, the savior of the world, because he's basically a world leader. It says he's also going to tear down the sanctuary. And so in this prophecy that's given, this little horn is going to show up. He's going to trouble Israel. He's going to stop their religious practices and then he's going to destroy the center and heart of their religion. This is why many scholars say that he, in fact, is the forerunner of the Antichrist. He represents the spirit of Antichrist. He's a forerunner. To understand the drama that took place during the Maccabees is to understand the Antichrist that's coming, the greater one the greater drama. And if you can learn about this dynamic and how God overcame it and rescued Israel, you will also find how to escape the coming crisis of the coming Antichrist. Jesus, when, when, when Jesus says, you know, um, when you see the abomination of desolation, right? He says, you come off your roofs, they had flat roofs, don't even go in your house to pack. Flee the city. Get out. Why? Because there's going to be a siege, just like what took place in the era of the Maccabees, how they choked off the cities, right? He says, get out of the city before it's too late. If you spend too much time trying to pack and the siege takes place, you're not getting out. He says, get out. In fact, in Luke, I, I think it's Luke, it's interesting that uh, the, the author of Luke writes it this way. He says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that her 
desolation is near. What is the desolation? It's in reference to the armies that desolate the city and the sanctuary. The armies themselves are the abomination that makes desolate the temple of God. That's exactly what Rome did in a greater way than what took place under Antiochus Epiphanes. So so when we connect the dots between what happened under the Maccabees and what Jesus is referencing, it gives us a context for what's going to take place in 70 AD. And for his disciples, they listened They connected the dots, and they escaped. They fled north to Pela. The Messianic community was basically the only uh, uh, stream of Judaism that made it out of the city because they listened to what Jesus had to say about Hanukkah, and it prepped them for their escape, their deliverance, if you will. Amazing in every way. So he's going to... Come along and um, stop, stop their religious liberties and destroy their sanctuary. That's why he represents the Antichrist. He will magnify himself in power and authority. He'll view himself as God on earth. He will destroy the inalienable right to worship God in spirit and in truth. He wants to desolate our relationship with God, our communion with God, our fellowship with one another. He represents all coming antichrists. They all operate under the same spirit, lawlessness. They're anti-Torah. This is the spirit of antichrist. And they all use empires to oppress and persecute and terrorize the people of God, i.e. Israel. And in Messiah, we all are grafted in to Israel. So the attack will not only be against the Jewish people, but against those who believe in Yeshua and identify with the Jewish people. This not only plays out in 70 A.D., It also plays out throughout history. To one degree or another, we see that rise up and then fall away. Rise up and fall away. And there's one great final fulfillment at the end of the age. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. One great final attack on the Jewish people, on Jerusalem, on those that identify with her. We're witnessing the rise of the spirit of Antichrist in our government today. It's been on the rise like we've never seen it before. Back to Daniel chapter 8. In this prophecy, we're given the reason for Israel's coming crisis. Chapter, 12, or chapter 8 and verse 12 says, And on account of transgression, the host in reference to Israel, the host will be given over to the horn, the Antichrist, along with the regular sacrifice, and it, this government, that's filled with the spirit of Antichrist, it will fling truth to the ground. 
and perform its will and prosper. The spirit of Antichrist rises incrementally. It becomes stronger and stronger and stronger until it prospers and has its way. It will fling truth to the ground. The Antichrist will disregard truth. The spirit of the Antichrist is about destroying the Torah as truth. He's going to bring truth down to the ground and trample it under his feet. The question is, what is truth? What is truth? The Hebrew word for truth that's used both in these passages and in ones that I'll reference in the weeks ahead basically is a reference to that which is real what we call reality what is true versus what is false and who reveals and defines what is true the creator the sovereign king of the universe when you ask people what is truth what do they say what do the universities say concerning this idea of truth? Universities for the last couple decades have been more and more asserting this lie that there is no absolute truth. It doesn't exist. Truth is subjective. It's whatever you think it is. You have your truth. I have my truth. If you posit something as truth, I'll correct you and remind you, well, no, actually, that's your truth. may not be true at all, and it certainly isn't for me, but it may be for you. On a societal level, how do we do that? We say societies determine what is true. Each society has its truth as a society, and our truth is our truth, but a different society may have a different truth, and we need to be sensitive to that, tolerant of that. Why? Because there is no truth. It's subjective. Well, we beg to differ. The creator of the universe is the source of all truth. He is the one who defines what is true and what is false, what is real and what is fake. And he gives that by way of revelation. And where can we find this revelation from the creator? We find it in two primary sources. Creation itself. We can observe creation itself, study creation itself through our sciences. We're able to what? Determine what is true and real from creation itself, from the record of nature, what our founding fathers referred to as the laws of nature. They themselves reveal truth. And secondarily, the other source, his word, the sacred scriptures. These two conduits, the record book of nature and the record of the scriptures, are the revelations of truth. They tell us what is real and true in our world about ourselves and each other, about who God is, about how we live our lives. Those two sources are objective standards that we can go to in determining what is true or false. The world by and large has rejected that. 
The Antichrist attacks and flings it to the ground. Once truth is undermined and removed, he can usher in his truth and then legislate it. And his truths will oppress the people of God and then persecute the people of God and then enslave the people of God. The enemy is all about deception, corruption, and slavery, ultimately death. But the sovereign king of the universe, he will intervene and he will overthrow, overthrow him. We see the stories over and over and over of the rise and then the fall of many antichrists along the way. God himself will send his Messiah. God himself will raise up the standard of truth and establish it over and over again. He is the one that sets people free. They will dedicate themselves to him and rule and reign with him in the universe that he has created. Truth matters. Hanukkah is all about the revelation of truth, the revelation of light, which is a, a figure of speech for truth. Daniel 8, 21 through 25. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Verse 23. In the later period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, transgressors, See, as we, as we opened up uh, with this, it says, on account of transgression, because Israel forsook God, forsook his ways, and were being assimilated into Greek culture, it gave the platform for the rise of the Antichrist to come and persecute them. Because people turned away from God, God allowed great judgment from the enemy to overwhelm them. We have left and turned our backs on God as a nation, and we're seeing right now the rise of the spirit of Antichrist coming to persecute us. This is the story of Hanukkah. We can learn so much. You know, if the nation would repent and return to the laws of nature and nature's God, as found in our Declaration of Independence, God would restore blessing through liberty versus slavery, liberty and peace versus oppression once again. In the later period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. God is watching us, waiting on us, seeing how we're going to respond to him. And based on that, our future will unfold. Think about this for a moment. This leader is skilled in intrigue. What does that mean? It means that this lawless leader is proficient in deception. The spirit of Antichrist is all about lies. Those that are Antichrists are consummate liars, cunning liars. This is how the spirit of Antichrist operates. Through deception, they twist the truth beyond recognition. They create confusion and chaos and then create laws 
to somehow hem it in and control it. They cannot be trusted. It's interesting that John says that everyone who denies or rejects who Jesus is is actually under the influence and being led by the spirit of Antichrist. He says they're actually Antichrists. We have seen leaders rise up in our country all around us that are lying and bringing confusion on every level. In fact, we're seeing this on a scale we've never seen before. Beginning with 2020, with the mysterious virus which came out of Wuhan, China. Note the lack of information and even the cover-up related to its origins. Then the mandated new experimental mRNA vaccine. They used lies and threats and fear to ensure that everyone would take the experimental pharmaceutical panacea. They said over and over and over, it will keep you from getting the virus. It will stop you from transmitting the virus. I watched the president's own lips actually say that. We all heard that. And he wasn't the only one saying that. All the lies, all the deception, right? You've heard this before. Let me just say it again. A lie can travel halfway around the world before truth gets its shoes on. And this lie traveled all the way around the world. 14 doses of the vaccine, 14 billion doses of the vaccine have been given. And truth finally showed up. And now everyone had to admit, yep, the vaccine, after all, doesn't stop you from getting it. It, it doesn't protect you from getting it. And it won't stop you from transmitting it to others. Wow, that was unbelievable. They connived, they lied, and they deceived us. They threatened us, they coerced us through fear and intimidation to close our churches and take their experimental pharmaceutical vaccines. And if you happen to have questioned it or had concerns about it, you were labeled a hater, a denier, right? person that is up to misinforming others. They shut down our churches, but they allowed the liquor stores to stay open. They shut down our churches, but they allowed the pot shops to stay open. They shut down our churches and said, you cannot worship. We do not allow you to join together in your religious liberties, in your religious festivals, in your temples, i.e. churches. You're not allowed to do that. But the strip clubs open down the street. People, wake up. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It attacks the people of God. It's full of lies and conniving and has an agenda to stop and silence the people of God, to rob them of their liberties. And I believe that it's come because we as a nation turned away from God a long time ago. And now God's handing us over to that. And we're starting to realize 
that's hurting us. They denied us to be with our moms and our dads, our brothers and our sisters, when they were taking their final breaths in their hospitals. I mean, let's shift gears, right? Let's shift gears. Look what happens to you today if you dare to say anything about God's definition of marriage between one biological male and one biological female. I mean, think about this. If you didn't take the job, they took your job away. People were threatened with their livelihood if they didn't take the vaccines. And then, and then they come along with their legislation, and now it's to the point that if you say, no, I believe that, uh, marriage, that, that, that uh, biblical marriage is only between one biological man and one biological woman, the fact that you even have to say biological, right? But, but you say that, you can lose your job. That, that, that's a form of hate speech. You're hurting me. You can't talk like that anymore. You can't share that anymore. God defines biological sex and biological gender as binary, male and female. But you can't speak out on that. You can't share that. You'll be marginalized. Might lose your job over that. I think the day is coming in which you could be prosecuted for hate speech if you were to take that position. Look what happens to you if you do not call a person by their preferred gender pronouns. Look at the new sex education curriculum that is being implemented in public schools all around the nation. Look at how parental rights are being flung to the ground as the state makes the claim that the children belong to them and not you. Pedophilia is now being redefined as PAMS, P-A-M-S, persons attracted to minors. It's a much you know, kinder term. You know, where, where does this go? Where do you think all this goes? It goes right down to the kids. Because under those regimes, it's about the children. The state views them as belonging to them for their use. And if they can capture the next generation, game over for our way of life. The sex traits found a new home in the United States. It is a moral pandemic, if you think about it. I could go on and on and on about different areas, but it's systematic or systemic, I should say, in our country, this move away from God's ways, God's laws. Truth is no longer truth. It's subjective. It's whatever you want it to be. And I'm telling you right now, who's going to speak out against that? Who's going to stand up and say no? Who will take a stand for the truth? The Maccabees. The Maccabees. This is the family that gives us the paradigm of what it means to stay faithful to your God and faithful to his ways. They're the ones that reveal the cost of what that involves. They are also the paradigm for how liberty is restored and how peace is spread throughout the land. But what it costs is more than what most people are willing to embrace. The question for America, for us, is will we return to the Lord? The bigger question is, will the church lead the way? Because if the church doesn't, it's not going to happen. You are the church. I am the church. 
And we need to speak out like never before, before it's too late. They're passing legislation quickly. They're on this, I'm telling you. They like to get to the place where it's all a hate crime to take a stand for the truth in any area. We can speak out and bring about the change before that happens. But we're going to have to make a commitment. We're going to have to count the cost and say, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to speak the truth. In love, in love, in love, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm not going to be quiet. You know, when people come up and they want to, want to share their idea of sexuality, and we want to be sensitive and tolerant and show love by not saying anything, that's not love. That's not love. Love is, you know what? I, I, I certainly understand your view and, um, and your right to share that. Um, how, however, God's word says this. Not, not me, I'm not saying it. God's word says this. What do you think about that? And just have dialogue. God's word says this. What do you say about that? Have some dialogue. And even if it's rejected and you're rejected, so what? The seed has been planted. That's how people get saved. Because the truth is like a seed planted. It has an effect. But if we don't speak the truth to one another, then there is no revival. There is no return. And the spirit of Antichrist will choke us out. I'm out of time, so I'll pick this up next week. We'll do this next week. So please read Daniel, the rest of uh, Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Go read the first five chapters of the book of Maccabees, the first book of Maccabees, and you will have your game on for the rest of this series. Shabbat Shalom.